Bonjour. I'm Terence Galenter, your American friend in Paris, coming to you almost live from Café Terence in Paris's 3e arrondissement. Today and every Saturday, I will be joined by colleagues to discuss books, movies, and song. And at the finale of every broadcast, I will sing a selection from the American Songbook. On the line from New York, uh, Sidney Stern, author of the Brothers uh, Mankiewicz with the unpronounced, unspellable last name, <laughs> and author of Toyland in 1990, Gloria Steinem in 1998, and 19 years later, Herman Mankiewicz and, and Joseph L. So the question is, why does it take you so long to write a book? Well, it it took me a long time to write this book, but it also took me a long time to get a topic that someone wanted to read about. So I spent about 10 years hunting for a topic and getting some failed book proposals turned down. Well, you know, that being said, uh, why after all of these years, uh, well, there is apparently a movie coming out on the making of Citizen Kane, and uh, Ben, one of the grandchildren, is on TCM. But apart from that, why all of a sudden this interest in in the in the Brothers Mankiewicz uh, by the public and by a publisher? Right, I know. Well, my book, I, I think I signed the contract in 2010 or 2011, so it's been a long time in the making to my sort of mortification. But it, using archives just takes a long time to get it done. And they were in L.A. and I was in New York, so <clears throat> it just took a long time. And apparently the family was very cooperative. They were cooperative. Um, I was used to writing books based on interviews, and I was able to interview Don and Frank, who were Herman's sons, and all of Joe's children. Uh, Don and Frank died before the book came out. But most of what I had to gather was in archives and in Rosemary Mankiewicz's basement, which was, she was Joe's widow, and she had his diaries and other personal papers that she gave me access to. Well, let's go back to the very beginning in, in Posen, because although the name is Polish, uh, these guys were uh, German Jews, uh, and their father, actually all three of them attended Columbia, which is quite interesting, spent a little bit of time in Wilkes-Barre, uh, or Wilkes-Barre, whatever the pronunciation is, at a coal mining town in Pennsylvania. So let's kind of set the table uh, before they got to New York. Okay, well, first of all, their, their parents were both immigrants, but they came from different places and met in New York. Franz, who later became Frank in Wilkes-Barre, or Wilkes-Barre, or Wilkes-Barre, different pronunciations from different people. Barre, if we want to get crazy. Right. Oh, that's true. You're in France. <laughs> um, Frank came over, Franz came over to make his fortune in um, 1891. And he was highly educated. He had been at the University of Berlin and wanted variously to be, according to Joe at different times in his life, a poet, a journalist, a teacher. So I'm not quite sure what he wanted to be, but he came to New York to seek his fortune. When he was there, he was pretty unsuccessful and had drinking problems and anger problems, etc. But he met a young seamstress named Johanna Blumenau, who was from Curland a German-speaking area of what's now Latvia. And they were married and, and soon afterward had Herman, who was born in 1897. And then in 1901, they had Erna, Herman's sister. So eventually, Franz got a job to be the editor of a German-speaking newspaper in Wilkes-Barre. Now we have that city again. <laughs> and, the, and the four of them moved there, and they had a much nicer life there. He was a personage there. He became chairman of the Democratic Party in Lucerne County, etc. And then in 1909, they had a little surprise, Joe. And at the time, when I first started, people kept saying, what well, was a menopause baby? She was so surprised. She was still in her 30s. So, I mean, now that's people are just now beginning to think about getting married in their 30s. So it wasn't really that late in their life, but things went faster in those days. So um, what happened was Franz tutored on the side and found that he liked teaching so much that he ended up at Harry Hillman Academy as the, the languages teacher. And he loved teaching, and he, it became an avocation, and, and to him the highest calling, being an educator and molding young minds and helping young people. So he decided that Herman, if he could get into Columbia University, should go there, and he wanted to go there too, and and go to grad school and become a you know a higher education educator. So he and Herman both got in, 
and they moved back to New York in 1913. Herman had to be 15 to enter Columbia, and he had a November birthday, so he was actually almost 16. And the father, uh, Pop, as he will henceforth be known, um, be, got his master's there, and then later a doctorate at NYU. Well, I, I the the movie thing actually began at the Algonquin uh, Roundtable with people like Dorothy Parker, Alexander Wolcott, and, and somewhat tangentially uh, Ben Hecht. Uh, the, the famous line when he was brought out to Hollywood to write write films to Ben was uh, in a telegram, "Come on out, there are millions to be made and idiots for competition." Right, your only competition is idiots. idiots. Well, actually, Ben Hecht was. Herman was a newspaper man at that point. He worked. For, he loved newspapers and he loved theater, and he worked for George S. Kaufman in the theater section of the New York Times, and also was the third string reviewer. Um, Kaufman was the editor of the section, but the sort of the second string reviewer. And and Herman and Kaufman were also collaborating on a play. Hecht, on the other hand, was a newspaper friend, although he also had aspirations to write, and he sort of looked down on the Algonquin group as wasting their time and spending too much time impressing each other with quips when they should be home writing. And a little bit of time drinking. <laughs> yes, a lot of time drinking. It was That's a, a big theme in, in Herman's life. His All drinking. of their lives, for that matter. Yes, that's Starting true. With Pop. I, I, I think Pop, was, yes, Pop had a drinking problem, although once he was an educator, he was a happier person and drank less. In fact, although he was cruel to Herman, abusive, really. Um, he was more um, ignoring of Joe, who was 11 and a half years younger. So they did have two different pops as their father. Yeah, for a long period of time, I think a lot of us thought that Joe was Herman's son because of the disparity uh -huh. in their ages. Uh, well, he gets out to Hollywood, and he began to uh, work on a number of RKO films, uh, several films with William Powell, and uh, some of which I just rewatched, A Man of the World, uh, ladies' man, uh, laughter, and you, you, a lot of the wit is there. I mean, obviously, uh, Powell is a great vehicle for his very, very stylish and sophisticated humor. Uh, but he he began to uh, to write some very interesting material. Mm -hmm. Paramount. He was at Paramount. At, Par at Paramount, right? Later, yeah, later. Right, right, right. Later, he started at Paramount, and ended at RKO. Right. But yes, Powell. Powell's wonderful. Oh, he's great. I love Powell. The great, you know, the great, uh, you know, my man Godfrey. I. Watch it several yeah. times a year. Yes. And then he also he made a he made a connection with uh, well before that he started working with Kaufman on some Marx Brothers material. Yes, and he had he knew the Marx Brothers in New York. I mean, he knew all the the people in mm -hmm. New York. And when he went out there, he ended up at Paramount producing two of the first two Marx Brothers movies that were made out in Hollywood. They had made a couple. In the New York studio, Coconuts, for I believe. Yes, and I can't remember the other one. But when he was out there, um, he supervised Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. Can you <laughs> supervise those four lunatics? <laughs> no, no. It they were crazy, and they were just as crazy making movies as they were what made it onto the screen. In fact, at one point, they were in the room with Herman's boss. B.P. Schulberg, and they took off all his clothes except his underwear and then left, taking his clothes with him. And they were, I mean, he was their boss, so right. you can imagine how they treated lesser beings. <laughs> yeah, he was totally crazy. Uh, yeah. Moving a little bit, you know, he, the whole family had some issues with being Jewish. Uh, and that being said, uh, Herman uh, wrote a script for a film that was going to be called The Mad Dog of Europe. This was right at the beginning of Hitler's ascension to power. I mean, it never got made. Uh, about seven or eight years later, the Confessions of a Nazi Spy was one of the first films to really deal with it. Came from Warner Brothers. Talk a little bit about that because it it does set up this kind of bizarre sense of awareness of who you are, and at the same time distancing yourself from who you are. Well, Herman um, went. He he enlisted in the Marines, and he was in Europe for the very tail end of World War One. He landed. I think he landed in Brittany on November 3rd, and um, the armistice was November 11th. So he did not see combat. However, he did experience war-torn Europe, and, and uh, as we all know, World War One. All wars are devastating. World War One was very devastating, and 
he um, developed a lifelong abhorrence of war. And when Hitler began his climb to power, Hermann, who was very interested in history and very interested in politics, recognized the threat. And when he saw that people in the United States seemed unaware of how um, threatening this could be, he decided he'd try to make a movie that would make people aware of it. So he wrote this screenplay. This is 1933. Mm -hmm. He had There were two narrative lines. One was about a character named Adolf Mittler, a thinly disguised, not very thinly disguised Hitler. And the other were two families in Gronau, Transylvania, which was really Germany, a Christian family and a Jewish family. And he had these two narrative strands to see, to show how common people were affected and at the same time to show Hitler's rise to power. And what's so impressive about the script was he was uh, have writing... Have you read the script? Yes. I got it from the Library of Congress, actually. Um, and yes, and I had to read that sort of online, too. You know, I had to get it through microfilm. Anyway, it is um, contemporary. He wrote it contemporaneously with these events unfolding, and yet the landmarks that he identified in Hitler's rise to power are still identified by historians basically almost 100 years later as the Beer Hall Push, the burning of the books, all these things that were happening, Herman understood that these were very important. So he, he wrote this screenplay. The studios wouldn't touch it. They didn't want to disturb the German market, nor did they want to incite. Well, if this anti-Semitism was just so much more part of the culture, and, and they feared that that would mean there would be um, pro-anti-Semitic movies made. I mean, it was just too much, too threatening to them. He couldn't get financing. He finally had to go back to work. He had to go back to the studios and work. He couldn't stay out on his own. So it was a heroic effort on his part. And it was a little bit ironic, too, because he always disdained the movies, and yet that's where he went to try to alert people. Well, he understood the power you know, of the medium. Given his relationship with Judaism, that he had such a, a powerful uh, awareness and a, a desire to, to make a difference, <clears throat> to make, make this make what was going on in Europe, uh, make make Americans aware of it, because we had Lindbergh and the America Firsters, and we had the Bund, and uh, we had, you know, a, a level of anti-Semitism that our parents experienced that we were fortunate enough probably not to have too much truck with. Uh, but then he moved on, and he made his first A movie, which was Fury, which I believe was Fritz Lang's first American. That's Joe. That's oh, Joe. Oh, that's right. Okay. Skipping. <laughs> I, I, I got ahead of myself. <laughs> okay, right. but he he did meet a, a little uh, another crazy guy from uh, Wisconsin, uh, Orson Welles. Yes. And uh, Welles is twenty four years old. He gets the he gets final cut on a uh, on what became Citizen Kane, and quite uh, quite a smart guy. He drafted uh, Greg Toland to shoot the film. He was a master cinematographer. He brought Herman in to write the script, although he spent most of his life denying he had much to do with it. Uh, and a, uh, a very young Bernard Herman, who we all uh, know from his work with Hitchcock, who had scored the uh, War of the Worlds, Worlds radio broadcast uh, in New York. And so he, he and Robert Wise, the, uh, the great director, was the cutter on the film. So uh, not to mention the whole Mercury Theater Company of people that were very, very active in the film. Uh, but talk about his contribution to that and perhaps his relationship with Mr. Hurst, who was the, uh, the thinly veiled uh, Citizen Kane. Right. It, it, was, it was a wonderful story, actually. First of all, in true Herman fashion, it kind of happened by accident. Herman had, besides his drinking problem, he had a gambling problem and he had a getting fired problem. He was always mouthing off to people. And, and bosses and getting fired. And so when he basically burned bridges to every major studio in town, he decided he would go east and try to rekindle his journalism career. So he set off with a friend who was driving east, and they were in a terrible car accident, and he ended up back in a full-body traction back in L.A. So while he was recovering... This young man who had a four-ply contract, as they called it, Orson Welles was a boy wonder. He had been a radio star. He could write. 
he was just amazing. And I must say, in writing this book, I had to keep squashing the Orson Welles material back down because he's so captivating. Several books on its own, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, many trees have given their lives for Orson Welles and actually and for Citizen Kane. I have a whole section in my on my shelves of Orson Welles. Anyway, so he got this amazing contract to write, direct, produce, and star in a picture, two pictures actually, for RKO. Now RKO comes in. Amberson's being the second one. Yes. Well, actually, no. no that he sort of exhausted it. with. He did that for them. That was past the contract. He had run over his contract by then. But he um, was having trouble. He was going to do Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. And when he finally did a script, it came in way over budget. So he was sort of back to square one. But many people were mean to Orson Welles when he came to Hollywood because they were so resentful of this oh, contract. Her, terribly. I mean, they they made their peace with their contracts with for lots of money in return for not having any control over their work. And here's this 24-year-old with no experience getting final cut. So it was very cruel. But Herman was nice to him, and he used to visit Herman. And so, inevitably, they started talking about this contract. And, and, and by then, Wells was desperate to come up with something. So they started brainstorming, and they came up with this idea that they would tell this sort of kaleidoscopic story of a man with through different viewpoints. And they eventually settled on Hearst, that he wasn't the, uh, necessarily the original idea. But, but Herman had always been fascinated by Hearst. He had known about him and known him. I don't know whether he knew him when he was in New York, but he was a giant, so he knew about him in his newspaper career. And then once he got out to California... He befriended him, and he, he and Sarah, his wife, were invited to San Simeon, and he was fascinated by this person, and he met people like Winston Churchill at San Simeon, etc. So they thought they would do this movie about this person who also had moved from left to right, supposedly engineered the Spanish-American War, etc. Yellow et journalism. Mm -hmm. Yes, so there was lots of material to deal with. And... Um, so by that time, they, he was so involved that they realized, yes, Herman should write the screenplay. Wells was not a, an experienced screenwriter, but he was a good editor, and Herman was. So Wells put Herman on the payroll for $1,000 a week, and he was supposed to write it. And at that point, Herman said that he wanted John Hausman, a producer with whom Wells had worked in New York, to work with him. And... Um, I don't really know why he wanted Hausman, but Herman was very good at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, and at that point, Hausman and Wells were not talking. So my semi-theory is that this was yet another way to shoot himself in the foot. But Wells went back east, talked Hausman into it, which wasn't very hard, and they came back. And John Hausman and Herman went out to the desert to um, write this this script and do it quickly. It was a very complicated script, but um, they were trying to keep Herman away from the alcohol, from the booze. So they were out there, and it's sort of a creation myth. You know, they're out there in the desert like Moses, writing this thing. And uh, But in fact, Orson Welles visited them a little bit. Sarah came to visit sometimes with Herman's daughter and so forth. And then they brought back what they called the American and presented very proudly to Orson Welles. And um, it turned out to be way too long. It came in way over cost. So then Herman went back on um, the payroll to reduce it. And that's how it got started. And what would, <clears throat> what would you say was Herman's major contribution to the story, to the script? Well, major, well, first of all, he knew the newspaper. He knew the history. So he, Orson Welles later said that, Herman created the Hearst character, although Herman and, and John Hausman knew they were writing it for Orson Welles. So they put a lot of Orson Welles into this character, this Hearst character as well. And there, there I mean, it's, it's elegant writing, and about 60% of it from the very original script is still there. They had to cut a lot. They had to rewrite some. Orson Welles always said he had done another script, although I never exactly saw that other script. And that's it's very controversial. Well, Pauline Who Kiel wrote? had her book, The Citizen Kane book, which I think I got through the Book of the Month Club uh, in oh, really? 1971, where she, yes. uh, uh, you know, uh, well, she sold a book uh, about yes. that. 
and that I guess would be the high water mark on on Herman's career. But as I uh, misalluded to earlier on, uh, Spencer Tracy, who became a, a friend of Joe Manikowitz, uh, starred yes. in Fritz Lang's first American film called Fury uh, with Sylvia Sidney. And uh, talk a little bit about that experience. And this was his first A film. He had worked on a number of, of B projects, the studios, uh, more as a producer than a, than a writer. Um, no, actually, nope. it's the other way around. Joe was 19 when he came out. Herman brought him out in 1929, right. and he started with titles okay. like Herman did at Paramount. And then he followed I guess before Herman. he became a director, I'm confusing his directorial arc. Right, yeah. right, exactly. So when Joe, Joe was as eager as Herman was disdainful. Joe was an eager beaver, eager to prove his mark, smart, funny, hardworking, so um, both of them ended up at Metro-Golden-Mayer by 1934. That's when Joe came. Herman came a year earlier. And Joe wrote, it, it sort of proves it's, it's good to be smart, but it's even better to be lucky. He wrote Manhattan Melodrama. Clark Gable. Which was a, yes, Clark Gable and Myrna Loy and William Powell. And it was, a, it was both a box office and a critical hit. But then John Dillinger was shot by the FBI, leaving the theater after watching it for the umpteenth time. And so it went into the history books and into the headlines. So that was his big first picture that he wrote for uh, MGM. Then he wrote a couple of other hits. But the way the studio system worked was you totally lost control of what you wrote, which, by the way, is not unheard of now for writers anyway. But he went, uh, Joe went to Louis B. Mayer and said, could he direct what he wrote to control what he had written? And Mayer said, oh, you need to learn to crawl before you can walk. I'm going to make you a producer, which was very high up at Metro-Golden-Mayer, but it was absolutely not what Joe wanted to do. He, he was creative. He wanted to write and direct, not administer. But they were the bosses, and um, so it, it, he had a lot of power. So Fury was his first A picture that he produced. And uh, Mayer didn't want to do it because it was a very dark picture. It was about um, a man, unjust, Spencer Tracy, unjustly accused of a crime, of a murder. And, um, but he said to Joe, if, you, if I don't let you do what you want, you'll never forgive me and you'll think you didn't have your chance. And in fact, to his horror, um, it actually made money, but he solved that problem by not telling Joe. <laughs> Yeah, the, the profit-sharing system that Art Buckwald uh, put uh, put out there. Uh, and then he continued with his friendship with Spencer. I'm going to just skip over Philadelphia's story and come back to it. But Woman of the okay. Year, uh, which was a uh, uh, you know tr a terrific film directed by George Stevens. Uh, yes. <clears throat> yeah, that has a really well. First of all, he knew he had he knew Catherine Hepburn and he knew Catherine Hepburn, but Spencer Tracy was one of Joe's best friends. They had even roomed together at some points. They shared a bottle from time to time. Yeah, oh, definitely. And um, Catherine Hepburn wanted Spencer Tracy to star with her in this property that she sent to Joe. She had it sent to Joe without the playwright, without the screenwriters' names, and said, "I want a hundred thousand dollars for the writers." and $100,000 for me, and $10,000 for my agent, and you have to make up your mind in 24 hours. So Joe thought it was probably somebody like Hecht and um, MacArthur, somebody, well-known screenwriters who had a contract somewhere else. It turned out that it was uh, Michael Kanan, the younger brother of Garson Kanan, and Ring Lardner Jr., the son of Ring Lardner, and they were unknown. So this was a very high fee, but it was a really good screenplay about um, a love of... A, I guess you'd call it a romantic comedy, although it was sort of different in those days, but between a Dorothy Thompson internationally known columnist and a sports writer. So you can see where those roles would fit those two people. And she wanted Spencer Tracy. And one day she and Joe were walking around the lot and she was in platform shoes because she liked to intimidate people. And Spencer Tracy came by. So Joe introduced them. And Catherine Hepburn said, Oh, I think you're a little short for me, Mr. Tracy. And John and Joe said, "Don't worry, he'll cut you down to no, size." Famous. And that's basically the theme, I think, of all their movies, right? Absolutely. Taming of the Shrew. But then let's go back to the Philadelphia story, Philip Barry's uh, piece that was a Broadway success. And uh, I, I, you know, there was a, well, she, I think she'd outgrown the box office poison. She'd done bringing up baby with 
with Cary Grant again. So Cary Grant, uh, James Stewart, and um, and and Catherine Hepburn, uh, another big success for Joe. Yes, that was written for her by Philip Berry. The 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 play was, and um, it did not. She insisted that there be two stars, two male stars, as sort of box office insurance, and so. Joe suggested they combine the character of Tracy Lord's brother and, um, you know, Dexter. C.K. Dexter Haven. Thank you, C.K. Dexter Haven. Um, And that attracted Cary Grant. So that was, I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie, right? And Joe took, and remember, all the time he's a producer, he still wants to be a writer. So he said that he was the one who who wrote the opening scene when she breaks a golf Mm -hmm. club. And the ending freeze frames, he said those were his contributions to the movie. It's, I mean, it's a wonderful movie. And hello, Sydney. Hello Hi. again after that short break. Hi. Uh, he got a, an early start, made three or four movies as a director, but then he really hit his stride in 1949. Uh, and in 1949 and 1950, he became the only uh, writer-director to win back-to-back Oscars in both categories. So let's start with a letter to three wives that got whittled down from a letter to five wives. Right. What was the origin of that story? It started as a cosmopolitan story, a letter to five wives. We must, for those uh, you know who are not of our age, must indicate that Cosmopolitan used to be a respectable magazine specializing in fiction. I don't know if it specialized in fiction, but they did publish a, a lot of magazines published fiction in the old days, right? And right. Um, so this was a story that uh, an author, John Klempner, published, and he later turned it into a book, A Letter to Five Wives. 20th Century Fox optioned the property, and many people on the in the studio tried to do something with it and failed, and that included uh, Joe. So eventually Saul Siegel, a producer, got a hold of it and hired Vera Kaspari, a writer who often liked to write treatment. She didn't really care about writing finished um, screenplays. They, Saul and Vera, cut off one wife. So now we're down to a letter to four wives. And she did a treatment that is has many elements that do appear in A Letter to Three Wives, the screenplay that Joe eventually wrote. So now it's four wives, and Joe took that and turned it into a screenplay. He said when he saw that property, I knew I had gazed upon the promised land. He saw the possibilities there. And Joe took Vera Kaspari's treatment and made four more specific marriages, eight really interesting characters, and so forth. But his script was too long. All of his screenplays were too long, including, some would say, some that were produced as he wrote them. Anyway, um, Daryl Zanuck, his boss, said, don't nip at all the different marriages. Take one whole marriage out. Take the least interesting one out. So now it's down to a letter to three wives. And that's what we see. Right, and uh, kind of tell the story briefly about the letter. I guess I believe it was Celeste Holm that sends yes, the letter, right? Vera, Vera Kaspari and Saul Siegel figure, figured out that the letter writer, who was Addie Ross, would not be seen. It would be an unseen narrator, and that eventually was played by Celeste Holm, who was so talented and so versatile. So the story and was so great in All About yes. Eve. And she'd been Ado Annie on Broadway. I mean, she could sing. She could just do so many things. And um, she and Zanuck did not get along, by the way. She had recently bought out her contract. Maybe she did Probably that. refused to sleep yeah, with maybe, him. Well, right, probably she wouldn't. That was actually after um, A Letter to Three Wives. So the, the story is that um, these three women are go- about to go do something, and they get a letter saying from Addie Ross, who's this sort of town vamp, saying, I've run off with one of your husbands. And the story of the movie is each one of them has a flashback and thinks about her marriage and wonders if it's her husband who Addie has run off with. So that's the, the meat of the movie, the three portraits. Yeah, we three won't characters. tell. We won't. No spoiler no, no. here. But, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, Joe liked to put words in, uh, in actors' mm-hmm. mouths to kind of espouse some of his philosophy. And there's a, a great uh, monologue by Kirk Douglas talking about 
uh, advertising and radio, which could be very much trans transplanted into today's uh, landscape. Yes, that's true. This was the first movie that Joe took an opportunity to have a mouthpiece character, and that was Kirk Douglas. And the, subsequently, he did it whenever he could. But Kirk Douglas's was so the Kirk Douglas character George is supposed to be a high, he's a high school teacher. And he not only does a monologue about the evils of advertising and how basically um, radio programming is just to create space for the ads to tell people all the things that they think are wrong with them and then they'll go, go buy the products. But he also goes into a long rant about the importance of education and how undervalued educators are in this culture. And that was very much Joe's um, putting his father's words into Kirk Douglas and it's wonderful and in fact Joe Mankiewicz said that um, later on when it was shown on TV and they have to make cuts for ads they would take that speech out because it was too apt and too on target even for television advertising not very apt if we were to extract that five minutes mm -hmm. today and insert it in somewhere you know on, on on the internet on Facebook or something it's just so uh, so relevant even exactly. today and then we get we get to the crowning achievement for me, uh, you know, fasten up. It's going to be a bumpy ride or whatever the bumpy night, whatever the exact thing was. Uh, was there ever any ever anyone in mind other than yes, Betty Davis for that role? Be, Claudette okay. Colbert was cast. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. Joe always said she would have done a fine job, too. She just would have been a different Margot Channing. But I think it's hard for any of us to imagine anyone but Betty Davis as Margot. Oh, Betty was yes, remarkable. Yes. You know, and uh, and the extraordinary uh, George Sanders, who uh, kind of woke up from his little naps and came out and was delicious. Yes, I know. When you can't not adore George Sanders in that role. And that was supposed to be Jose Ferrer, but he was um, he couldn't do it. And Joe was fine with George Sanders, who was quite wonderful. No, it, it, it's it's remarkable how much, how well it holds up. And I've. Uh, I, I watch it at least once a year. I've introduced a lot of uh, foreign women here, particularly, you know, my, my fiance had never seen it and uh, it continues to watch it. It's just, uh, and, and it, I think it's so accurate in terms of what life was like in the theater. And I, you know, prior to, let's say, March of this year, might have still been the case well, in the theater. The whole backstage thing. I would thing. also say it's it's they're more universal than just the theater. Um, the the age thing for actresses, particularly in movies, actually even more than theater, is that you're aged out and it's not your friend. And Margot was not wrong to worry about that in 1950, nor in 2020. You know. No, nothing. Yeah, you know, some levels, yeah. nothing has changed. Although I will say that here in Europe, they still write mm -hmm. roles for uh, real women, and I. I'm reminiscent of a remark that uh, Pedro Almodovar made a number of years ago uh, where uh, the, the crux of it was he felt that uh, unlike in the 40s and 30s when we had uh, Gene Arthur and Carol Lombard and, you know, other very, very strong female characters, he felt that the only reason that women appeared in American movies so that we know that the hero is not homosexual. Yeah, I, I wouldn't dispute that. In fact, he made the movie All About My Mother, and that was a tribute to All About Eve, too. Yeah, he has wonderful female yeah. characters. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, you know, and you go back and look at those films and, you know, uh, how great these women characters were, how, how alive and fully evolved and how supportive they were of their men without being uh, obsequious and were, were strong. And it's well, gone. It's, Joe uh, wrote complicated characters, females. In fact, he said if he had done all about Adam, it would have been a very thin movie because he understood the complicated course that women had to follow to success or to fulfillment. So anyway, double double back-to-back, -back, double Academy Award winner. Uh, and then the, his career from that point forward, I mean, to me, that was the apogee. However, uh, some of them are flawed, but they're still yes. wonderful touches. You know, Barefoot Contessa with Eddie O'Brien. Uh, not my favorite, but still very much worth watching. And at that period after the, uh, after the war, when American uh, 
producers needed to leave the money in the foreign countries, which is why we saw a lot of films being made in Europe uh, by American uh, American companies. Yes, well, by that time, Joe was on his own. He had left 20th Century Fox, and I would add Five Fingers, by the way, and uh, No Way Out were two of his really wonderful films at Fox. Well, those are two. I think let's go back to No Way Out because this was uh, Sidney Poitier's uh, first performance, and he was Richard Widmark, who forever be in... in, in emblazoned our brain as Tommy Udo when he pushes that woman down a staircase in uh, in her wheelchair in uh, Kiss of Death. But the uh, but he was a wonderfully liberal guy from uh, from the Minneapolis, and he hated what he had to say to Poitier to uh, tell the story yes. of that particular relationship on film, yes. No Way well, Out. He, uh, no Way Out is about a, um, a, a young black, doctor who's i think he's a resident by that time in an inner city hospital and these two white racist criminals come in and need treatment and while while sydney poitier is treating one he dies and the evil brother is richard widmark and he's so nasty um and richard widmark <laughs> was such a lovely guy that apparently every time he would say these horrible lines he'd apologize to sydney poitier <laughs> after the take and poitier finally said Hey, we're actors. It's just lines. And Widmark was the first, one of the first, to in, invite Sidney Poitier into his home, and they became lifelong friends. But he was so the opposite of those parts he played so well. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was great. Very much a uh, a functional liberal yeah. at a time when that was okay to say. Uh, then he made you know a, a film that I, I I still get a kick out of. Uh, a little bit miscast, uh, Guys and uh-huh. Dolls, uh, with, uh, I mean, I, frankly, I always felt that uh, Sinatra, uh, as a Jewish uh, gambler, was a little bit uh, miscast, although in, in New York, you can always mix it. any ethnic group, you know, everyone is Jewish in New York, even if you're not, and then Marlon actually had a, uh, a pleasant, but not a, a powerful singing voice, and uh, this is my uh, my opportunity to get a few bars in as if you listen to me you know that i uh, the restaurants and hotels are closed so i can't sing so uh, had i had i been around at the time uh there's a wonderful scene when he takes uh, sister sarah to havana and <clears throat> song that he sings to her is your eyes are the eyes of a woman in love and oh, how they give you away. Why try to deny you're a woman in love when I know very well what I say? I say no moon in the sky ever lent such a glow. Some flame deep within made them shine. Those eyes are the eyes of a woman in love. And may they gaze evermore into mine. Tenderly gaze evermore into mine. I, I, can, I can be Brother Sky. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, I must uh, say, I've never uh, done been a lot of fun. It was also a musical before. I think I can say I, I was. Well, you've never been interviewed by me before. <laughs> yeah, it, is, it, is, it is a show kind well, of waiting I've never to happen. Been sung to but, on, you know, on camera, so. Oh, well, you, well, now, you, now have, you've lived. I have. <laughs> yeah, I'm going yeah, to dance. I've now. done I've had a lot of. Su- I've had a lot of sex with the success with this voice. Well, yeah. And in any event, it was it was it was a lot of fun. I, I I saw it at the Avenue D Theater in Brooklyn when it first came out. I was about nine years old or eight years old, and with that vivid kind of Dick Tracy like mm-hmm. color scheme, the way that it was done, 
and uh, and all of those crazy characters, Sheldon Leonard and B.S. Pulley and Nicely Nicely Johnson. And, you know, it gets a little... uh, a little cornball at times. It takes, I think, some of the edge of Runyon is off because he really knew those characters. But I still find it to be a lot of fun, and I look forward to it when it's out. Well, Joe thought then of it as he, a fairy tale. I mean, he he wanted a fantastic yeah. atmosphere. Um, a Burroughs, who had written the play, hated it, but you know, that's mm-hmm. par for the course, right? Well, yeah, no, but I, I well, because I, on you know, I. I in the uh, Nathan was played by Sam Levine in the original production, who couldn't sing right. a lick. They had to dub, dub his voice. And then Robert Aldo, who was Aldo Abruzzi, who was Alan's father, was uh, was Brother Sky. But I love, I, you know, I just love the yes. characters and the whole, uh, right. the, the, you know, the silliness of it. And having grown up in Brooklyn uh, with an uncle who was uh, who ran a bar that uh, Murderer Incorporated hung Good out Lord. in. I mean, Abrellis came close to killing my grandmother. So these guys are up my alley, man. I, I, so it's, it, it's kind of a trip down memory lane for me. He got, it, he got involved uh, with a Graham Greene uh, novel, The uh, Quiet American. Talk about that because it's, uh, it's a very important piece of writing that I think was, has I've been mishandled very often cinematically. Uh, talk a bit about that and uh, what, I guess, what attracted Mankiewicz to that film. Well, Mankiewicz came to that um, because he was, inter- again, he was very intellectual and he was interested in people and, and the psychology of people. And he thought Graham Greene's um, book was a wonderful illustration of how intellectuals are really affected by their emotions. They think they're making decisions very rationally, but in fact, they too are emotionally motivated. And Graham Greene's novel, Graham Greene had been a a correspondent in Vietnam during the French occupation of Indochine at the time. And he was very opposed to the colonial powers. And right at that point, this is the mid-50s, the United States was involved, but nobody knew it. They were helping the French. So he wrote a novel that was very anti-colonialist and, um, I guess, pro-indigenous pro, um, forces. I don't know that he was particularly pro-communist as an ism, but, but uh, um, yeah. in favor of self-rule. He was opposed to us being right. there. And yeah. um, Joe took the, that, they, he optioned that book and, and flipped the politics. He made it basically a pro-American, anti-Vietnam Book. He was led around. He was manipulated by CIA people. Um, Herman was the savvy one in terms of politics. Joe was interested in theater, and he was, as I say in the book, highly intelligent people tend to think they're highly intelligent about everything, and, and he was manipulated. So he had wanted Laurence Olivier for the role of the um, English sort of burnt-out journalism journalist, and after Olivier saw the script, he said, no way. <laughs> so he ended up with Michael Redgrave. And for um, the young American do-gooder, who was uh, the dupe in um, Green's uh, book, he wanted Montgomery Clift. And after Montgomery Clift was in the terrible car accident, he got Audie Murphy, who was in, he was the World War II hero. He had done some Westerns, but he was way over his head with Joe's complicated dialogue, et cetera. So it was pretty much of a mess. And they were over in Vietnam shooting, and that was a mess, too. Yeah, a mess yes. for everyone. Uh, you know, those were the days when the two Dulles brothers who did so mm-hmm. much harm to this right. country, you know, or our country, although you're there right. and I'm here. But uh, with a lot of a lot of their decisions, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about two more films before we we finish. We, we can't, you know. There was a film <laughs> made by Fox originally on a budget of one point two million. It was supposed to wrap in sixty four right. days. What happened to that film? Well, people have said, is it really true that Joe went into Cleopatra one way and and it ruined his life? And I've said, I don't think that that's a complete exaggeration because it was such an overwhelming and devastating experience to him, both physically and mentally, um, that he and then public being publicly fired after 
he had completed it and pretty much wrecked his health doing so. He, never really well, he also inherited it. It was a disaster with Mamoulian. Yes. He he came in to to rescue it, then he was sacrificed by yes. Daryl Zinnick. Yes, what happened was Elizabeth Taylor had a tremendous salary promised to her, and at this point, it all it's also intertwined with the the business fortunes of 20th Century Fox because they were flailing, the studio system was failing, and they wanted Cleopatra to save 20th Century Fox, and Joe was supposed to save. Cleopatra so that he could then save 20th Century Fox. But the board of Fox, the the bankers basically in New York kept getting involved and saying, do this, do that. Start filming even though you don't have a finished script. And Mamoulian had tried not to do that. And Joe kept arguing, this went on for years, please let me stop and finish a script so we can film um, in the right way, not in continuity, not not creating um, sets and costumes, and then not needing them or them sitting idle and and having all these stars on, uh, and not just stars, extras, etc., all on salary. It was just millions going down the drain. And then at the end, Joe was publicly blamed for all of it and fired, and it was awful. And, and I and I forgot the the physical part in that he was directing by day and shooting up to stay up to, to write at night and then taking more meds to try to sleep for a while. And it was just a nightmare. I think as, he, as someone had asked him, uh, was he on Cleopatra for two years? <laughs> and what was his answer? He said, I've never not been on Cleopatra and Cleopatra's <laughs> never been not on me. And that was when he was the mystery guest on What's My Line. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, terrible. But he, he, before we lost him, he, he had a, an opportunity to go out on a high note. Uh, he uh, directed Sleuth with uh, Michael Caine and, and Laurence Olivier, and uh, which uh, remarkably, uh, uh, Michael Caine, I think, is very much underappreciated as, as an actor, and he more than held his own yes. with Olivier. Yes, and I remember having a wisdom tooth extracted that day and, and watching it at the Regency Theater oh, on medications. And it was, it was I, you know, I always think of that tooth and that movie. But talk about, a little bit about that, because that's a, it's a, almost a theatrical piece, because it's a, two characters. Yes, primarily. well, it's interesting, because anyone else probably would have opened up. It was a play. It was a very successful play. Joe did not sure. open it up. He, and, Yes, and um, Joe kept it enclosed. He has there's one exterior scene with a maze, which is sort of symbolic. And by the way, Joe used to brag that it was the only movie he knew of where the entire cast were nominated for Academy Awards because there were two of them. <laughs> but um, Michael Caine was very um, popular at that point, but he wasn't Laurence Olivier, and he got very nervous about it and uh, knocked on Joe's door like the night before they were st start to start shooting and said, I'm really nervous. And Joe said, I'll take care of you because without you, we have no movie. You know, it's an adversarial contest between these two characters. And it's quite a tour de force. I mean, it's just so delightful. But it seemed that Olivier seemed to have enjoyed that experience with uh, Kane as well. Yes. It's very yes, complimentary yes. of him. There was one scene where he has to reduce Kane to tears, and afterwards, I mean, Joe's accounts of everything, uh, Olivia, Olivier must have been theatrical in every conversation. He said, Before I thought of you as an assistant, now I consider you a partner. <laughs> so he, he promoted him. <laughs> but Wonderful. Well, this, is, this has been great, but, you know, there's only one, one more thing that we have to do because uh, we, we have come together through a very dear friend that we lost just very recently. I used to laughingly refer to Deirdre Bear as the, uh, the other published author from Monongahela, oh. Pennsylvania. Of course, her, her output, uh, both qualitatively and quantitatively, uh, dwarfed mine. And I don't know if she was aware that just before she died, she was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for her most recent book, Parisian Lives, which was a semi-memoir uh, semi about how she wrote about those two, uh, two writers and how they uh, affected her life. Let's talk a little bit about Deirdre, and hopefully she's up there or wherever those good people go and, and listening to her. 
listening to us. Thank you for that opportunity. Deirdre was very important to me, and um, I know that she did not know about the the uh, being a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And when I found that out, it was it felt like a fresh blow to me. Although if I did believe she were she's looking down on us, then she'd know, and that would make me happy. So <laughs> I, I'll go with you and say she's she's watching us. Deirdre was a giant to me. She was a very important friend to me. We were friends, we were buddies, but she was also a mentor and I am not the only one. I have, I personally have seen her put a lot of thought into helping people that she just met tangentially. I mean, one time we were at a reading and we were in the equivalent of the green room. It was a, it was a bookstore and we were in the storeroom, the off, you know, where all the staff went and this man who was in charge of keeping his company said, well, I've written this book of poetry and I don't know how to get it published. Well, of course, Deirdre had no idea if it was any good or not, but she spent a lot of time and effort telling him um, different presses that she thought might be interested in how to go about trying to get an agent, et cetera, et cetera. And that was Deirdre. No, she was great. And we had become, we had met, I interviewed her for her book on Al Capone, and uh, and we discovered that we were both born in this little town uh, at the time. I was born 47, maybe 10,000 predominantly coal miners and uh, and steel workers. And uh, we came out of that and we both uh, escaped at some level. And uh, so we had that in common. And then the uh, oh, I was in New York, I think, two years ago, uh, she had had this fractured ankle and she could barely walk. Uh, was getting stronger, but got on the train from Connecticut, came down and and went to the coffee house, which you may know uh, was started by uh, uh, back from Vanity Fair way back when, uh, Crown and Shield, and where uh, 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 the Roger Angel at 100 years old still goes for coffee. And uh, she came down to to join me and my friend uh, Martha Babcock, who was a writer at, at Time for many, many years. And uh, it was very, very, and then she was just here last last year. We spent a couple of about a month together here in Paris. So, uh, yeah, that was, and I had spoken to her just a week before. Yes, that. I know she. I and, mean, we know uh, she loved Paris, but I know she was very fond of you too, and she talked about you often and enjoyed your times together when you all were there. That was it. Was great fun. Well, let's let's let let's end on that note, and let me say it's been great fun. Hopefully, uh, we'll. This will pass, and you'll come to Paris, and we'll do something live. Maybe we'll show uh, we'll show all about Eve or another film, and talk about uh, Mankiewicz, uh, the, the the brothers, and that whole that well, whole I world. I would love that, but I don't want to do it unless you're going to sing too, and maybe I could do a little dancing too. I think well, the Parisians hey, well, look, are ready it, for that. <laughs> absolutely. The problem is not whether I sing; it's how to stop oh, okay. me from singing. Okay. I mean, now that I now that I can't perform anywhere, I'm performing on the street all the time. I I walk into <laughs> shops, uh, you know. I got to keep my shops <laughs> prepared. Uh, Sydney, it's, it's been, been great. great. Thank you. Uh, thank you very okay. much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us, and please share your comments and suggestions at Terence at Paris-Expat.com. That's T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E at Paris-Expat.com. And visit paris-expat.com to sign up for my five weekly newsletters about the City of Light. Until next time, à bientôt à Paris.